Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold tight, you nutbags, it's Brandon Block, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast. I'm your host and managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. As always, as I say, thanks for joining us, downloading, streaming, however it is you listen to your podcasts. For those who are listening for the first time and don't know who we are, what we stand for, we at House Culture are a group, a gang, a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. You can follow us day to day on our Instagram feed at housecultureNet, but what we do with this podcast is sit down with some of the most iconic characters from the scene for a candid chat to discover how they fell in love with the music and how it shaped their life. In this episode, we chat to Brandon Block, one of the original superstar DJs. I'm sure you think you already know Brandon Block, whether it's from his humble beginnings as a mobile DJ back in the day. And then we actually came out with a name, and don't ask me why, the irony, because it was back in 85, so we had no idea of what was going on, and we called ourselves Ecstasy Disco. Or maybe even his madcap antics from his legendary residency on the Space Terrace in Ibiza. We came up with a superhero called Vinyl Man, and Vinyl Man was the one with the rebel sleeve on his head. So we had duplex Vinyl Man. So that's why we used to put them on and have the little faces out here. Yeah. But that was just one of the antics we used to get up to. You know, we used to do some really, really crazy things. However, as you'll hear in this hour-long chat, his overall story is most definitely an inspiring one of recovery. By all rights, you shouldn't even be here today. Well, when I went there to see him, he said, you give, he said, I don't know how long you'll live with the amount of stuff you're taking. He said, I really don't. He said, I'm a medical doctor as well as a psychiatrist. I have no idea. I said, you could keel over any time. He said, but I can guarantee you this, you will not be in the next two weeks. So let's all get a lesson in the power of change from a man who has been on an epic journey of discovery that just happens to involve a bit of house music along the way. May I present to you, Brandon Block. House Culture. Cool. So, Brandon, uh, thanks for making the time for us, uh, accommodating us in your wonderful shed. 
Can we call it the Matt. block shed? Uh, what do we call this place? Home. Home. Yeah. Lovely stuff. Yeah, I like it in here. Cool. Uh, and you're one of the superstar DJs from that height of that era. Um, loosely, I loosely. think you know. I think there was a, there was a, quite a few of us who who had um, some inf- infamy, let's say, and some um, well-known stuff. So, I mean, listen, I love that people think of. Uh, yeah, it's a great. It was a great era. I mean, look, you know, it's very profound, and if you look at it a way that's yeah, it's mapped our lives. You know, and f- musical genres don't, or musical scenes or movements don't last this long. They don't. They don't change the face of music. They they add, you know, they were there. So the 60s, the 70s was Beatles and, you know, towards the 70s and 70s was like Rock and Roll and Stones and more Beatles. And then you had rock and sort of rock bands. And then 70s and 80s was 80s was electro and disco and New Romantics and then punk. And then obviously, well, punk was 70s as well, wasn't it? So, but you know, each one sort of lasted 10 years or so. Yeah. But this hasn't stopped, has it? No. This has just evolved and, you know, created, I mean, how do you describe it now? Dance music. I mean, is it, is it, you know, it's, it's everything. Well, dance music can cover so many well, genres. Does, yeah, I mean, that's yeah, what it yeah. does. Right? It's not even genre genre specific now, is it? It's it's a evolution. Yeah. You know, every single rock band or you know, Ed Sheeran's cool recording massive recording artists are all cool because they've all had dance remixes done. They can all get played in the festival. You know, festivals have brought many many. The big festivals were traditionally rock Woodstock. Yeah. I mean, the original Glasto was nowhere near as orientated towards dance music as it is now. It was very rock and tribal, spiral tribey, and you know, sort of pagany. Yeah. So yeah, I you know, I mean, to be part of that whole movement, or you know, um, yeah, just a, a, an awareness, a culture. What do you want to describe it? I don't know. It could too deep. It was just uh, to be part of that great fun time was cool. uh, incredible. So yeah, yes. If, to coin a phrase, I was regarded as one of the superstar DJs. <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, to, to get to that superstar status, uh, what was it that first got you into music in the first place? See, I never, I never, I never, I never aimed for that. That wasn't my achievement. It wasn't my goal. I had no idea that would would end up. And I don't think anyone did. I don't think any of us at the time were just, you know, we weren't thinking, oh, we're going to be DJs and going to be, you know, because DJs, when you look back, were radio DJs or you know people who were on telly doing, you know, top of the pops. That's pretty much it. There was no yeah. real, you know, there was no other. I mean, okay, there were some underground club DJs in New York, and there were some, you know, some sort of crossover DJs here Steve Walsh, Chris Hill, Robbie Vincent, lots of those sort of guys, friends of mine who I'm still very good friends with today. So, yeah, uh, what did it take for me? I just love my music. I always have. I was at school, I got a bit bullied when I was a kid uh, at school, and then I sort of found the lunchtime disco at a very young age. And, you know, and up with my mates, who are my friends, very good friends to this day now, used to sneak me in under their blazers. <laughs> and I used to go and, and swear and dance. And, you know, my back's a bit ruined at the moment. But um, back in the day, I could dance well. And I used to yeah. go to Dingwalls on a Sunday lunchtime when Paul Trouble Anderson used to play. <coughs> and Norman Jay. I used to go with my uh, my friends and we used to dance and spin, knee spin and backflip and jazz dance yeah, and yeah. shuffle, which is now the modern take on it. I loved it, man. I loved it. That's why I grew up. That's what, that was my thing. So what was the music that was being played at those types of parties? Disco, boogie, funk, yeah. uh, imported soul and funk and jazz funk. But it was, uh, you know, a lot of the, the guys from the Americans, Larry LeVan and people from Studio 54 were sort of inspirational for these DJs. It was just a great Sunday lunchtime, you know, never, there's never, never any trouble. It was always, you know, good fun and just the moves and just dancing. And, yeah, I loved it. Been known to bust up, been known to fling foot, as we say, 
recently been flinging foot again and I'll get to the reason why later <laughs> um, so did you look at those guys like Paul Trouble Anderson Norman Jay and think that I want to I want no, that or I didn't I didn't even know, at the time the DJs I used to aspire to and I don't think I think I don't know if I aspired at the time I think it was something I fell into I mean, I love my music. Don't me wrong. Was as I said, Robbie Vincent, Jeg- Greg Edwards, Tony Blackburn. You know, best let's go in town. I see him on a Friday yeah. in Leicester Square. Uh, so as I said, um, Chris Hill, Froggy, plus rest his yeah. soul. Steve yeah. Walsh, rest his soul. They're all bloody dropping. Um, we used to drink in a pub called the John Lyman. My best mate Ali, Joe, and another guy, a couple of friends of mine, Lee Birch and Jason. We were like the, the young. They took the, the older lot took us under their wings because we were like the little mouthy bunch, and um, we sort of got. Um, but as I said, we so we got nurtured, let's say, by the older lot. But that was it, you know, and uh, that was music. But we used to spend our hard-earned, or hard-earned, let's say, my my youth training scheme money on the vinyl in the in the local Wembley market. And yeah. I, I remember Daddy Ernie, who's a DJ on Choice FM. Yeah, he used to run the market. So we used to go in there and buy imports each week, and we just amassed our collections. We weren't able to afford them Technics yet because they were very very expensive, and they were you know for the you know, real vinylist, turntablist, let's say. Um, so, yeah, and then, um, what, what was that? And then the DJ who turned up to do the job, or didn't turn up one week, sorry, the, the resident DJ for the pub where we drunk, and like the owners knew us very, very well and knew he was always in there. I was cashing checks which were bouncing every bloody week. I got taken into the bank manager the first month after I started my job and actually getting proper wages, and he said, you're £600 overdrawn. And that was 35 years ago. And I went, I have no idea what he's talking about. He said, well, I do. He said, you've got, you've cashed about, you've cashed about £700 worth of checks in the John line. You haven't got any money. I went, oh, I'm very sorry about that. He said, you will be. And I said, Den and Edie are all right. He said, it's not about Den and Edie. It's about you not spending bloody money. So anyway, I was overdrawn for God knows how long after that. trying to pay this debt off anyway so um and then, so the uh, dj gig in there helped to pay that well to pay that debt not really paying for it. <laughs> with 30 quid between us no way but we got the job because uh, the deal didn't turn up and then said right go and get your records in you lot so we went home got our milk crates went back played music it was a great night he said you can have the job so we that's how the career started really yeah and yeah. um so what year was that in that was in 1983 around there and the funny thing was that just after that had happened myself and Ali we sort of not didn't branch off the club the pub shut in 85 unfortunately but we were asked by the actual um the group the pub group let's say pub 80s they were called I think at the time you know that punch or the yeah. people who owned the brewery yeah to go and play other uh, some of their other venues uh, around town but we so we, we invested in a British Telecom comma van, little yellow like a transit, and we invent, and Ali did that. I went to Tandy and got a personal account, first experience <laughs> of like higher purchase, and um, got records. No, I got, I, got, I got decks, which weren't they weren't Technics, they were just these belt driven things. Belt driven, belt drive is not the best way to mix, right? We know that. So belt driven decks. We had a mixer, Citronic, I think it was, and these two. Massive speakers, which were really good. They really worked well, and it's an incredible amp. And I love this amp. My, it was just all you did was plug two speaker wires in the front of this amp, two phono jacks, and turn it on. <laughs> and that was it. There was no buttons. It was just two on on, and it powered everything. It was loud as hell. Anyway, so that was the amp, and um, we went around town. We did our little bits, and then we actually came out with a name. And don't ask me why. The irony, because it was back in '85, so we had no idea of what was going on. We called ourselves Ecstasy Disco. No way. Yes. Future, <laughs> so it's all named after you, then. The future is it? mapped itself out very wonderfully for me. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, Ecstasy Disco. I did have a business card somewhere still. 
you've got Ecstasy Disco running, and then was it Acid House happened and everything changed? So no, what happened? Well, yeah, well, sort of. So basically, what happened was we had disco, funk, blah de blah. All my mates were sort of um, smoked cannabis. I never did. I, I had an experience when I was very, very young, and it affected me terribly. So I didn't get involved in that, and then I was off and out doing that. And I, um, I'd go along, but I just wouldn't, you know, wouldn't get involved. Anyway, so come to um i was we was all we was all drunk most of the time and uh then all of a sudden in one night they'd come back from being out wherever it was and said oh the bells the bells it was like what are you talking about they said oh we've just been to this incredible party warehouse it's all the acid house music and i went oh yeah i've got some of their house albums and they went oh you'll love it it was great and then uh i was very anti-drugs but I, i took i tried something and from that night there was no going back, as yeah. I say. But then, obviously, it got got to a place which wasn't very good. But um, yeah, so the transition had started. I mean, but I was DJ anyway, and I just it, uh, there was a guy who I work with now. Actually, I do some work with called Carl Pearsall. He runs a thing called the Yes Group, which I'm quite involved with, which is personal development. He used to run clubs back in the day, and he gave me my first sort of gig, let's say, and I drove him mad to do it. I knew him, but I just you know I was hounding and hounding, and he went, "Okay, fucking drop me mad." <laughs> I'll give you a get if you give me a set. So I, I got a set with my, my very good friend, John Jules, who was my mentor, really. He was a fantastic turntablist. Mm-hmm. He used to own a record shop in Renners Lane called Record and Disco Centre, which I ended up working in with Simon Dunmore. Yeah. Dean Thatcher. Paul Oakenfold used to come in and get his uh, records. James Hamilton used to write the record uh, mirror disc chart from that shop. It was like the record shop for this side of London. Yeah. And we was all in there. So uh, John Jules was DJing at the Boulevard Kneeling, where it was the, it was the, the night was called AZ, AZ, AZ. And it was a great night, so it was just fantastic. And uh, I got the gig in there, and yeah, and it, from then it was just, wow, this is, you know, this is the way forward This is the for future, me. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Acid House exploded, and you're in this record shop, you and Dean Thatcher were in there, um, and you set up, Flying after that? Well, actually, this is the f- how funny. So, my, so we used to go to Queens on a Sunday. Queens was a fantastic club by run by Phil Perry and Fiona at the time, his girlfriend. And um, it was just a wonderful Sunday lunchtime get together on the on the river. Actually, no, sorry, in the Queen Mother's Reservoir in Windsor, Colnebrook. And um, we always to go there. And then um, what happened was then the Queens sort of lost the license. I think and they moved it down the road to full circle. But then at the same time, I'd also I'd also been working for Carl at this other Sunday night club called Haven Stables, which was a Sunday night. But what happened was, I, we, I, met, I got in really well with the owners of Haven Stables and, and we got quite pally and got them involved in all sorts of shenanigans. Anyway, I came up with the idea because Full Circle was down the road and it was, it was a bit further away. Not much. And I said to Dean, look, I, I, I said, to be honest with you, I, I don't want to drive that far. <laughs> Especially, if, you know, after being out all Saturday night and we can't afford cabs. So I'll have a word and see if we can do a Sunday lunchtime thing. And the Sunday lunchtime thing was called First. So that was called First. That was me and Dean Thatcher. And uh, we sort of started that. And that became a real institution as well. And everyone used to come there on Sunday. But what happened was it was um, 12 till 6. So everyone used to come from over London. But then what happened was then they'd shut for an hour and then open for the nighttime session. So I ended up just going out the road for an hour with all, whoever was there. And we'd just get, you know, drunk and whatever and go back. For the nighttime session, so that's that's what started happening then. 
they ended up just leaving me in the bloody club, just give me the keys. And and then I'd stay there, I'd have a quilt in the back of my metro. So I used to just lay the quilt on, quilt on the dance floor. And mates would stay around, we'd all just fall a kip or not fall a kip or dance and play music. And, you know, girls would come and party with us. And then in the morning, the cleaners would come in and go, right, can you get out now? And we'd go, oh, yeah. But that would be Monday and we'd start again doing something somewhere else with shenanigans. But that was all, yeah, so that was all. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much how it remained. Yeah. That crazy sort of not going home. Just finding the party every just day. Just finding the party. And we yeah. were the party. Yeah. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd have people come to our local pub in Wembley from all over London because it was just so mental. Yeah, we'd just go back to the pub from Ealing, stay in there, go out, stay back in there, go out till the weekend and go out again. And then again. And that became pretty much the routine for many, many years. Um, obviously, the, the, but as the, the, the scene expanded, the DJ bookings expanded, the um, demand for our services, I mean, it was all, not just me, it was everyone who was, you know, making a name for themselves at that time. It uh, just happened that I was, you know, pretty way out there yeah. with, with hedonism and probably the maddest. I've got my Canary of the Year order out there still. Which I held on to the title for for quite a few years. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, and you know that's the way it went, and you know, it was yeah bonkers. So that was the very beginning, almost, and like the you know just set the set the scene. And at what point was it that Fubar? Oh right, okay, so got set Fubar up at the milk bar. Okay, right, so. Uh, here's a story. So I actually adored Lisa Loud and I'd seen her from afar. I'd never actually got a chance to speak to her. And uh, I, my friend, my very close friend, Matthew, who actually took me to her first gig at the trip, which was Nicky Holloway's thing. Mm-hmm. Anyways, another story. But anyway, um, I he did a gig in Oxford, Didcot Railway Museum. It was incredible because everyone was... Now they were trying to find these really, really cool places to do parties. And whoever found the most obscure way out venue was like the the one who did it so Matthew found that it did quite it was you know we got taken to the venue on a, a little little train set and then you'd go and then when they had smoke machines coming out because it was all like some old engines in the big main hall yeah so it's a, a railway museum so there was a, a there was like the, the, the gift shop was where we used one party where I was DJing and then there was you know the big room where I actually ended up playing a little bit because I just had to fill in for someone it was my moment of oh my god I'm playing records in a big room 2,000 people room they had engines behind us and the DJ box the, D, the DJ setup was just in between these two massive engines and they had smoke machines with colour coming out of the, the, the funnels so you can imagine it was like wow what an experience and lasers and so we did Haven Stables then me and Dean we went to Queen because we loved Queen's and we said look because every night it started being used we said well do you want to do a Tuesday night Haven Stables going well we'll, we'll you know, we speak to Phil Perry and see if we can, we'll lose him to DJ because he has the Sundays. Can we do a Tuesday? We said, yeah, okay, well, what do you want to call it? So Dean then said, well, I've got a mate who's quite cool at this stuff called Charlie Chester. I said, okay, so we met. I knew Charlie anyway because I used to work with Charlie's girlfriend at the time, Karen, before all this started in an employment agency in Wembley. She was my boss and we used to hang out together and get drunk. And um, so I met Charlie before, and he said, oh, and I said, no, Charlie. So we met up again, and Charlie said, look, I'm happy to help you do this promotion stuff. So we came up, and D- Dean had seen this flyer for flying with the trumpet thing, and we, we came up with the name Flying, because we were flying. <laughs> and um, that's how it was born. And Charlie became the, the immense promoter that he, he did. He took it, he embraced the whole, he saw how to do this stuff, and became very, 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 you know, good at it. 
so what were those par- parties? They were Sundays. Well, Sunday was for Queens, and we yeah. had parties on Tuesday, flying. Yeah. But flying, then Kylie started doing some other ones. We did what Gosh, uh, Dingwalls, Power Quatsy and Brighton. There was all these other names he used for these certain parties with different people. Yeah. Uh, flying opened the record shop, which I worked in for a bit, and then anyway, in one afternoon, it was our business. Well, it wasn't our business. Charlie did the business thing. I was sort of not big flavour of the month musically i think i was too far i wasn't cool and trendy i was more way out there and crazy let's say yeah so charlie sacked me one morning after we've both been out all night <laughs> so i can't go to work he went oh, i've got to sack you haven't i i said you winded me up he said well no not really i said well you can't just be out all night and then sack me he went, well it's the way it is i went okay Anyway, so that's what that was. That was normal Saturday morning stuff. Yeah. I then went to work in Black Market Records, which was great. I worked with Ashley Beadle, Sam Webb, and DJ Rap, and Mickey D, who I work with now. And oh, anyway, so it was great. I had loads of great things going on for me. Wow, fantastic. And um, so back to Fubar, and then uh, then Charlie was putting on. See this when the, the, the it's like the I wouldn't call it Britpop, the sort of Balearic-y thing, like the bands like Farm and. Yeah. You know, Happy Mondays yeah. and, you know, Primal Scream and all that was sort of... Manchester's type style, Manchester. Yeah. And also, I suppose, we had Blur, but it, well, they were all Britpop, weren't they? We didn't have any bands. Oh, yeah, Natural Life, Flowered Up. Yeah. So they were the British, the, the London versions. And basically, Charlie had this concert at the Astoria and he put the farm on. And I remember I was, so I knew the farm and I, I ran on stage with Peter Hooten and sung All Together Now. All Together Now. <laughs> and I was doing all that. And anyway, I, as I come up, I bumped into Lisa and Lisa, who, Lisa's very good friend, Lisa Ran, who runs, who's, you know, part of the, you know, been around for a long, long time. She's a really good friend of ours. Yeah. I got to talk to the Lisas and we just hit it off and we, we partied and we went, we had, we just got so much fun and we just ended up hanging out from then for the next four years with all our my mates from Fubar and, you know, we had a little group of friends who used to travel around with, which was fantastic and great fun. And then we did the Milk Bar, which was so successful, queues down the road every week. And the Milk Bar was just a place to be in London, wasn't it? Well, I mean, yeah, can, can you kind of set the scene at what a So the Milk like Bar was Nicky Holloway's little... Uh, Baby, a uh, little pre- precious gem of a uh, nightclub in London, which was just behind the South. It was called the South Theatre Club. No, sorry, Sutton Row. Yes, opposite the Astoria. And it was just, uh, uh, Nicky had everyone. Pete Tong, Dave Darrell, Dan Emerson. We had Fubar, Paul Harris, uh, who did Dan, the, the recession show with Darren Emerson. It was Thursday nights with Shum or Pure Sexy, which was Danny and Jenny. Friday was back to mind, Dave Durrell. Saturday was Pete Tong. Me was Sunday. And then the, the week was programmed. And, you know, often we ended up being in there for most nights. So that was just, a, and what a place. It was just so cool. And then it turned into, and then the Velvet was the milk bar. Velvet Underground. They changed, moved the entrance. Oh, man, it was just, wow. And um, what was the music? Was that the only place you could hear this type of music? No, God, every every club in London was now playing house music and dance music. You know, the, the, Rob Rumba was Bobby and Steve. You had the sort of American kind of influenced house music with garagey stuff like New York. And then you had the more, uh, I suppose, Balearic type uh, who would embrace the, uh, and you got the boys' own type stuff, more Roach Motel and early sort of English Deep House, I suppose it would be called. There were so many little, you know, niches, but we, we all had a common value, and that was just having fun and partying, which was true across the board. So, yeah, it was brilliant. So when was it you first discovered Ibiza? Right, so Ibiza, for me, was 1990. Charlie Chester, we said, right, we're going, I'm going to set this tour up in Ibiza. My mates had been the year before, in 88 and 87, and I was a 1990 
I suppose, a newbie. I went out with Charlie and we, we, we founded the way that, he, you know, we met the people we needed to meet and he met the people, the club owners, who he was going to put the club's nights on with. And, um, yeah, so then Charlie, then he, then, he, then he booked the 1990 trip or 1990 trip and then didn't book me for it, which I always sort of regretted a little bit. Anyway, so I, said, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go out there again because I had such a great time. And I took my other mate and, uh, and we went out. I knew Alex, because I met Alex at Haven Stables and I knew Alex had a club out there or was doing something. So I got messages through mates of Alex's to him. He was in the right state. Anyway, he had a right fight with a, a guardian civil one at that point. Anyway, so Alex said, come and play at my club. And I went, I'd love to. So me and my mate took all my five boxes of records in the morning. So what club was that? Space. Yeah. The Space Terrace, the infamous Space Terrace. And I, I went on this and I went, oh my God, what a place to DJ. Can you imagine just open air think, oh my, all these pretty people just every strolling around in the weirdest and wonderful clothes. You go, oh my God. So I played that day with him. There's a lot of people from London there, all, all mates of ours. He said, how long are you here for? I said, I'm staying for the summer. He said, well, you know, uh, you just play every day. You play as often you want. I think we started, it was only Sundays we were doing it first. And then the artists started getting busy and busy and they said, right, we want to open every morning. So me and Alex had to take turns to play every morning, which was... Can imagine, and then we that would be at six in the morning, but don't forget, we go out the whole night previous and directly from space. So that's how it started being that whole you know, go out, come home at six, go straight to space, play, go out again, and that's you're gonna get bloody ill, yeah. And I did that for a while, long time, and then, uh, and then you know, we both started suffering a bit. So, those events at space, obviously, you play for you play for so long. And it would be like a real party atmosphere, and you could just kind of get away with playing anything. Was did you enjoy that, that freedom yeah, well, as a DJ? Well, it was the eclectic set, wasn't it? It was the yeah. whole high, the whole Ibiza Balearic feel, you know. And Alfredo championed the whole sound, didn't he, by playing various, you know, sort of rock music, you know, punk music, whatever, whatever's a good record. If you're a music man, you know, you know a good record. It doesn't matter what it is. It was, you know, I have, we all have guilty pleasures, and I often listen to them. But I don't call them guilty pleasures. It's just an era I was in my life, which this music I liked. Yeah, I heard someone have said to me that the, the the term guilty pleasure is a nonsense. There's only pleasure. It's not That's, guilty pleasure. What are you yeah, it's just about? pleasure. Yeah, yeah. They, they call it yeah. guilty pleasure because it's not uh, obviously cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, you know, music's cool. Music across the board is cool. If you're able to make music, you're cool. And in the right context, playing the right track at the yeah. right well, time. Well, yeah, having that, having that musical awareness and knowing that certain sounds will resonate at a certain time, that's what it's about, isn't it? Because you think music is the language of love, it's the language of communication. Uh, and if you think about back in the caveman days, how do they communicate? They communicated by... Before they could speak, you can well imagine, by making sounds. They sent messages by drums, didn't they? That's how they communicated. So, you know, if you're communicating through music, and then, you know, people love listening to classical music, love because it resonates. People love listening to Mozart, listening to Beethoven. These people write classical sonnets and stuff, and you just go, wow, it's a beautiful piece of music. It came, It comes from somewhere. It comes from a creative mind and they create these you know that's what music does anyone's creative look everyone's creative everyone just has to channel their creativity so people this is why the human race is such a credible species because look the creativity work, work, i mean 200 years ago you wouldn't be sitting in a place like this whereas evolution took a lot longer so you've got to be got to be really sort of wow we man what is this a I'm amazed i i you know i i appreciate things so much more since i've been on my sort of journey and i look at things and think wow who would even so yeah music is no guilty pleasures music's just pleasure yeah all kinds so all of that eclecticism that you brought into the space 
terrace sets I, I do admit that I was there a few times and I remember specifically one time record boxes on heads and um, just general chaos <laughs> um, but the, the party up, and the vibe incredible we came up with a superhero called Vinyl Man and Vinyl Man was the one with the record sleeve on his head so we had duplex Vinyl Man so that's why we used to put them on and have the little faces out here but that was just one of the antiques we used to get up to I mean Christ you know we used to do some really really crazy things but it, you know it, we i think we were we got really got in touch with our renewal childs there yeah and people responded to that of course yeah you know that place you i can't describe what that feeling was like in space i cannot I, you know people ask me how how credible it was and you just can't describe it and kind of, i don't know how to experience how to explain what it was like to play music of your choosing and having people dance like that, like there is no tomorrow, like this is just the moment I'm in and I'm using it, nothing better. You immerse yourself in that moment, you're in. Yeah. You're done. So, yeah, it was an incredible experience. Really, really, you know, that's why it resonates. 30 years on, people still talk about it. Yeah. You Change people's lives. You mentioned your partner in crime, Alex P., uh how did wasn't there some kind of special way that on the space terrace that you guys had to bring in the booze and that's how you got paid on the profit of selling on the terrace that was how all did Alex that... first I, let me do, I wasn't yeah. involved in that part of it he did that the year before he had an idea with a friend called James who had decided that because what we used to do in IBF used to rent bars yeah. to people in the summer they didn't own the clubs, never owned the bars. They used to rent them because it was easier for people to stop them and they make a profit and they take a profit from the, the takings. Right, so Alex decided with James, they saw the terrace of space. Place was always an inside dark, very dark, cool techno club. I think Alex used to play there anyway. They approached Pepe and said, look, we'd like to do this project. And they said, all, okay, in theory, it sounds good. We, see, Pepe had a cafe concerto license, which means you can just shut for an hour and open up again at six in the morning, which was great. And stay open all night. So they sort of came round with this idea and it would be a, you know, the bar, Alex would stop the bar or whatever. So that's how it happened. The trouble is we just, when I started working there, we just gave it all away. We're drunk ourselves. And then we had the thing of space said, right, we'll take the bar off you. We'll buy it off you and we'll give you your books you can sign for, you know, your drinks and take it out of your wages because they still put us on wages. They used to get social security numbers and all that. And um, we, we had the practice of signing each other's names. But Alex was better at it than me. And I've got, I'm, I'm going to space one week. I'm going to get me wages. And they said, you owe us £2,000. I went, well, 2000 no, £200. Pesetas? Yeah. £2,000 yeah. is better, not £200. But that was a lot of money anyway. I went down. They went, look. I mean, it's not my writing. It's his writing. <laughs> so then the next day, I've done the same thing. And signed his name in the bloody book. Anyway, so it was quite fun. Um, but that was the practice to sell bars. And then, uh, then obviously, space took the bar and... You know, they ran with it, but then the people were coming to the island, so it was just incredible. And so the summer that you used to spend out there, did you used to live lived, on the island? Lived on the island. Take all your records out there? Take my records out there, leave them in wherever we were staying, five boxes of records and carry them to every club I played in. Yeah. Not something that's easy to do. No, no. My goodness. So, uh, were you living above Café Del Mar? And we had the whole floor above Café Del Mar one year. We had, that means like four... We, did, we lived around Port Des to rent one year. So we had to come down, then we had Port Des to rent, 
Then we we, we lived in Ibiza. Then we when we had various villas. Then we had various apartments. Then what happened to is then eighteen thirty started doing the Sundance parties, which we were resident at, and they started paying for our hotels. So we stayed in Pikes. I, I demanded Pikes for a, a, quite a period of time. So we were there for quite a few few visits we stayed at parks a lot often oh let me live around oh let me live at the top road in Paul's tent uh, anyway we we moved around you know for the years we had villa we had everything we had we tried lived everywhere it was brilliant do you think that era could be repeated again do you think no for health reasons and also i just don't think that it just it was a moment you can't you know moments happen for a reason i mean I don't know how you would recreate it. It, it who knows i'm not saying that particular moment won't happen again because it was when it was and that's what it was for it was meant for a reason like everything, and that's incredible. So it's a complete kind of super club era, obviously in Ibiza and in the UK. At that point, there was uh, kind of a, a massive club pretty much in every major city in the UK. Yes. You were obviously resident at, you know, Up Your Ronson and, you know, a Club for Life in London. Yeah. So what did, like, a normal week oh, involve God. for you during that period? I mean, look, before I went, you know, before I went on my journey, let's say, on my path, when my path changed direction, it was fairly, it involved getting on lots of trains, lots of traffic, lots of driving between venues. I mean, God, you know, when there, when there was the clubs up north and we used to drive up north at the M1, we'd have to do three or four clubs in the night. So we'd all be crossing paths on the motorways, you know, like I'm going to Blackburn now, then I'm going to Preston, then I'm Burnley, then I'm back down to London, then I've got to go and do, and clubs were open all night, so we, you could... Was, That'd be one night? Yeah. Wow. Sometimes. Yeah. I'm not all the time, but it, it, that did happen often. Like doing an hour and a half at each one, you had to work out. So you'd an hour between, you'd get there and you'd do it. So passion in Colville for it. And then it was, like, oh man, it was just a schedule like that. You would not be able to keep up with unless, you know, you were doing something. Well, and that's why you were obviously the winner of the first ever Caner of the Year award at the music magazine. That was in Birmingham. Awards. I remember well, yeah. It was pretty crazy. I mean, I, did, I got my job. I mean, I did my work. I did my DJ, often in some very, very precarious states, but I did it. Um, it's all a bit of a blur, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I had some great nights. I mean, look, for one club, Plashen, for instance, when we used to, they, they, they got so sick of me asking them to go up to the bar for me, they put optics behind the decks. But that wasn't very financially viable because we drank all them and asked for another refill and they said, no, no, we'll go back to the other thing and they took them down again. So, yeah, but literally, literally, it was a small DJ box and we had we had three optics there and you just turn around and just get you what you wanted. That was a long, long time ago. Yeah. So what was, in terms of kind of substances and things like that, what was the point um, where you just knew it was just not sustainable? Well, I was, I was ill. Uh, I had many illnesses physical illnesses I picked up in my travels with my immune system being compromised uh, and I was just I, I, I was no longer able to function I mean literally I was a walk-in prescription bottle alongside all the uh, recreational substances uh, and and the amounts which are copious I'm not talking I'm not even going to mention it because it's just it's just unfeasible but enough that it would you know keep me from surviving yeah anyway i um i got to a stage one day sitting in the bloody a and e actually emergency ward again like rocking around like a just you know someone who was just out of their mind and i was and i i, I that moment i sort of was told that i couldn't have any more painkillers or any more downers or any more bazzy dazzy pound or whatever and i just went i just said to myself god if i don't stop this i'm not finding a way out and I had a realization. I had an awakening, which was fantastic because I could have quite easily not. Yeah. Um, so something happened for me, which said, you know, you need to live, and you can't do it this way. It's not going to work. Yeah, it's not going to work. You, you've um, you've just overdone it. And what year was that? Ninety six. 
Yeah. So '96, I uh, you know made the decision that I would do something about it. I don't know what because there was no information. There was no you know, there was no uh, no you couldn't just pick a phone up. You couldn't just go somewhere. And go, oh, I need help. I don't know what I'm doing. None of that. Support was very stigmatised back in the day. You can't just come out and go. Oh, I have a really bad drug problem. None of that. So you have to just go and find discreetly a way to, to get better, which I managed to do. And I still keep in touch with him to this day. He's my mentor. When I work in the field of mental health, I uh, I take my caseload to him and he unloads it for me and unwraps it with me. Yeah. And he's, you know, a very, very famous and incredible man who I owe my life. Saved your life. Well, when I went there to see him, he said, you give, he said I don't know how long you'll live with the amount of stuff you're taking. He said, I really don't. He said, I'm a medical doctor as well as a psychiatrist. I have no idea. I said, you could keel over at any time. He said, but I can guarantee you this, you will not be in the next two weeks. And I think I went, oh, okay. I'll come in. And I decided, and I went in, I said, I went, and I went, I went in, I went in on the Monday after the biggest blowout I've ever had. I said I wouldn't, but I did. I said, I just, what, wouldn't no, blow out or wouldn't go in? No, I said I, I said I wouldn't blow out. I wouldn't have a blowout. I yeah. wouldn't go mad in that week, but I did. I went madder than ever. And uh, and then I went into clinic and um, I came and then, you know, I just went through hell, mental hell. Yeah. And I went through mental hell for many years, rewiring my brain, which I, now we know we're allowed to, we can do. Because at the time they just give you antidepressants and I said, I'm not taking any of that rubbish. I took it for about a week or two weeks and I went, I don't want any of this. And I just went cold turkey and all the medication they put me on. So that threw me out of it again. And then obviously I'm moving forward. The stories, because, you know, the, 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 you know, the world's become a lot more open. We realise that, you know, a lot of the stuff that we live under, the constraints and the humans, you know, the human condition, expectations, all that stuff affects us. So now that's why we have to talk about it. I have to say, I'm not good. I need help. Whatever yeah. it is, it's difficult to shout out, but I mean, if you can reach out, you can do it. And, it's, and you know, support is there, because everyone's on it now. Consciousness, people realise that we need empathy. We need, not sympathy, we need understanding. Um, because of, you know, the way we live. So is it kind of that realisation in 96, and uh, like a, obviously a, a daily struggle just to kind of get through... Oh my god! That I, 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 yes, I mean, I, it was. I was. My head was like Vietnam, bombs going off. Right? It was like a, a war zone. I'm not being funny. It was like so. I have no real recollection of because because your body doesn't like pain. It veers away from pain. So, sort of anxiety, pain, or anxiety, you know, pains, uh, pains of that type. Your brain won't remember. It may remember the moment. It may remember the the power of the pain but it won't mention the actual well you can remember but it tries to not for, to, to forget so I actually can't remember how painful it was but I know it was excruciatingly tough mentally yeah not physically but I mean my physical health was not great was terrible actually you know I was again I was my body was dying but my brain was just scrambled there's some pictures you can show I mean it was like a it was like a, 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 a exploded circuit board with no neurons to attach to attach any bloody connections to, so I had to rewire everything basically. Wow, and you've come out the other side. It's amazing. I mean, it's a long time ago. I shouldn't yeah. be saying victim stuff. But, you know, great. I'm very grateful I'm here. But at the time, it was frightening. Jesus, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, you know, I had no idea what was going on, and you know, wasn't you don't have the information. You can't read anything. My actual saving grace at the time. I don't know if you won't remember because you're too young, but. I think you probably are as well, but there was these little range of books. If you went into a chemist, they had little booklets on bowel, irritable bowel, and all these little conditions that we yeah, suffer with. Yeah. And one of them was stress. And I, I picked up and I went, 
oh, okay, I read, I read it, and I read it, it was only 20 pages long, I read it, and I went, oh, it reduced my anxiety to so good. I was like, that was my little go-to for a, um, a long time. That's what made sense to me. Yeah, I realised yeah. what it was that was going on, anxiety and, you know, the fear and why my brain had been deprived of the normal high chemicals and what had happened. So I sort of started working on working that out for myself. Yeah. Which I did, so I'm very grateful for the little book of stress. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Amazing. So Brits, yes, you can talk about the Brits. It was a, a moment of... Um, so when you up for an awards right so here's the story so myself Ricky Morrison who you met earlier and Fran Sadoli who's another friend of ours had a, they were a very very prolific Amer- American music type recording duo called M&S and yes. you can look at their you can look at their catalogue and you'll see some really big hits but all very vocally Barbara yep. Tucker they also did the South Zone Nugget which yep. was a massive hits anyway so they I, I, I'd, I'd come out of the clinic in 96 and I was still <sighs> You know, still battling with my demons through for many years, but I was in a bit of a state like this still. But anyway, they said, look, we've got a remix to do and we wanted your input. So I went and did this remix with them. Um, Baby Bumps Burning, it charted. So we said, wow, it's just a thing. So we called it Blockster Remix because they didn't want, they because they had MS, they didn't want to convolute the, 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 the two, you know, styles, let's say. So we called it Blockster, and then they said, right, let's make another track, which we did, which we remixed the Bee Gees, which is just happens to be there, the blue one, You Should Be Dancing. That that chided at number three. So I was then on top of the pops, right? Which is my the the moment of my life. I had a wonderful time, top of the pops. It was all the world was going, we was record deal and everything. And so the next week, 
or the week that the year late, I think that the Brits were on, and they've got the, and I, my my mate used to employ me pretty much every year to play at the Brit party afterwards, right? He ran the production company, so he rang me up and said, "Look, this year I've got someone who's a big hit called Ali B, who's been Capital Radio, but Ali B let him down." He said, "Can you do it?" I went, "Yeah, of course." Anyway, so I was playing at the Brits anyway. So in the meantime, the manager said we've been nominated for the best British dance act because the King of My Castle, which went higher, is American. So I said, well, get us a table. Said, well, no, we're not going to win. I said, well, I don't care. Just get us a table. Don't be so tight. And they said, all right, we'll get a table. So we got us a table. They filled it up with very, very rich people. And there was me, my dad. I got my dad over. <laughs> me, my dad, Fran and Ricky. And my mate, Tony Byrne, who's a radio plugger, who's a fantastic guy. King of the big ups, he called himself. <laughs> big up your record with me. Uh, and then uh, we there was free booze. I indulged in quite a bit of it. And was then told by a bit of a joke by Dame Bowers to go and collect an award which wasn't mine, which I immediately thought, well, I'm going to do it. And I did. And it was no award. It was American Beauty or whatever it was. It was a soundtrack. It wasn't even the right bloody award. And, you know, the rest of the says history. Um, it was a moment in Britpop. I look at it now fondly. Start of a rock and roll feud with uh, Ronnie Wood. <laughs> if you notice, none of us went for any. We were just bantering on a mic. It was it was a, a to and fro. Um, so yeah, I mean it was it was great, and the Brits, but they Brits, they they stopped drinking the year after, and then. Did you play? Like, did you play at the after party that I, night? No, they wouldn't let me because I had some threats from some various people. Uh, so I didn't. I had left, and um, the year after they stopped the drinking at the Brits, and then the year after that they introduced it again because everyone said it was so boring. <laughs> So, um, but I did get, I'll tell you what I did the year after, the year after the uh, the, the incident, Brits TV, i.e. the internet channel, asked me to do red carpet interviewing, which I did. And so I was allowed this side and all the other people who were the press weren't allowed that side. So I got to speak to everyone and drove them all mad. 12 months later. Yes. Really Amazing. crazy. Lovely. But one experience, I mean, you know. Uh, it, was a great, it was what it was. I was who I was then. And that was 20, 20 bloody, 20... What was it, 1999? So 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Everyone asked me about it. Bloody hell, it's, just, it's, it's folklore, isn't it? I don't mind talking about it now, but it's, you know, it's a long time ago. Yeah. So let's move into more modern stuff. Yeah, so let's talk about now. Right. Talk about, obviously, you've been through it all. You've completely turned your life around, if I can say that. I think you can say that. Of course you can. Um, In a positive I, direction. Yes. Uh, well, it was, a, it, was a, it was a choice. It was either a choice of yes or no. How am I going to do this? Because... Over the years, although I had, you know, curved my behaviours, I hadn't hadn't matured emotionally. Because you have to you have to look at the emotional side of you to get to the root cause, which I wasn't aware of. It's all very well changing my mind and my thinking and dealing with anxiety, which you know I was and I am able to do quite well. I can now to do that. Come on, you know, I'm trained in CBT and stuff like that. So, but it's the emotional stuff that you will, will emo, you know, trigger trigger the emotions and the feelings and some of the behaviours. So you have to be aware of. That, so the journey was, I was actually suffering emotionally, I think, um, and there's lots of sort of different ways to look at that. So significance and, um, yeah, significance, uh, you know, fame, how do I deal with fame? And these are all things that humans get, we now know, addicted to. They release chemicals, there's a buzz. And this makes, this is why, this is why every human is addictive in, by nature, not by illness, not by thought, by default we want pleasure that's what we go for so you you know if, if you're interviewing someone you want you get excited by it you'll do it again if it gives you pleasure and because it releases chemicals in your body and your brain requires those chemicals and when they release the chemicals it changes the way you... right so we live in a very stressful world 
especially now, more so than ever. But we're, we're, our, our also conditioning from our parents as young'uns is not congru congruent with the beliefs that we're told now and the stuff that we are led to believe. Uh, we know now that our parents, a lot of our parents, weren't great at the, the way they spoke to us because that's the way they were spoken to. Through the learning now, we know that that impacted on us has probably had an effect on our lives now. So we've got that. We've also got the, the introduction of incredible technology, but also very, very damaging if you're not using it the right way. So we, we live in a world of comparisons, being not good enough, which is often in a core belief of our belief systems anyway. Because your parents are like, well, can't you be like Billy? Or can't you be like, you know, well, he's good. And, you know, you oh. without knowing, you're not now the best footballer in the world. And all of a sudden, your world's collapsed. So we're on that road of comparisons, expectations. We have to live up to it. We should be doing this. You must do this. You have to do this. Well, you know, no, you don't. You can you do your best. If your best isn't good enough, then that's the comparison you live by. You know, I can only do this. This is what I can, I'm capable of, and that's all I can do. And if you allow to, if you allow yourself to live with that, and you know, accept that that's the case. And if it's not, who do you compare yourself to? This is it. Why? Why is it not good enough? Why is my best not good enough? Because someone else told me it's not good enough, or I've seen that it's not good enough by comparing myself to what I believe I should be aspire to. So back to me. So I, I sort of lost my mojo for music in 2010. Not completely. I just I got to get a bit disheartened. Technology was moving real fast. There was so much music out there. You know, it's more now than ever. But you're trying to sift through music to 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 get a set together, and and uh, you know people resonating to you know, the music they know and they want to hear stuff like this. So you're you know so you sort of um, I I I probably had the urge to give back as a human. You you the connectivity and the whole learning journey I'd had. I wanted to share that. So I went to a, a drug and alcohol service locally, and I, I approached them and said I want to volunteer. And the lady who ran it was an old friend. Um, turns out, she said, come on, you know, she said, but you don't know it all. You have to go on training courses because it's not what you think. You're not just coming here telling people how it works for you. You've got to listen to what they've got to say. So it's this it's, it's holistic approach and listening to how their life is. Because everyone's life's unique and their experience. So what I tell you will probably not mean anything, but one nugget of information might think, oh, I could use that. That might change me for the better. So uh, yeah, I went on this journey. I did that job for a long time. I went to work for the NHS after that, and that was really where I burnt out because we weren't given the support we required. I was working with very, very, very complex people. It's called outreach when you go to the houses, people with mental health issues, substance abuse, crime, and uh, homelessness. They were the worst of the worst in far as, as far as the treatment system is concerned. So they judged them on the money they, they, they impacted on the system. So A&E call-outs, police call-outs, you know, uh, visits to treatment centres, hospitals, could be anything. Yeah. And some of these people were costing hundreds of thousands. But yeah, they still left them on the streets. You know, you could invest, you could have invested 30 grand of that money that you spent and rent a flat for a year. There is something called first housing now, which I think does some, a similar model. Yeah. Anyway, so that burnt me out. Because I was I have an empathy, I've got an understanding. I have a, you know, um, I took a lot of that stuff on, unfortunately. Yeah. Because I didn't have the, because what we used to in the old job, we used to hand over every night. We used to go and leave, you know, have a chat, leave it with the 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 um, you know, the, the managers. Yeah. And you'd go home, you'd have a head free. But whereas this, you know, you, you who knows? And these people are on the edge of ODing and you know not survive in the morning and you just think wow what if I said something God for you know how do I speak to this and you go home with this stuff you can't speak to anyone so I actually realised that's what happened I got burnt out anyway the project came to an end but in the meantime I didn't ask like, the celebrity big, big brother which I did, and I, I did again this is a moment of why why I'm doing this why I'm asking myself 
I knew I had demons to overcome, and I thought maybe I should do it there, which yeah. was a big mistake. What happened there? Well, I had a psychiatrist who was a, a big fan of mine. He was a lovely man. He said, I'm a big fan of yours. Oh, wow, I couldn't believe it was coming. He said, but, and I told him what I was doing. He went, oh, my God. He said, I couldn't do that job. He said, and you've just finished. I went, yeah, he went. So he said, I, I'll, I'll keep an eye on you for the next few days. And it just got worse. And my, my, my anxiety got better in me in there. I just had too much going on in here, trying to let go of all the stuff out there. I've got, I've got clients who've got data protection, and what if I say something, and you know, all this stuff. Oh my God. So I had, I had all this stuff, and it was, just wasn't leaving. It was just, I had I had to be, I should have left the job six months previous and worked on my stuff, and I'd have been fine. Anyway, I walked out. It wasn't a big show. I just said, look, it's not for me. I'm not, you know, feeling great. I need to be, you know, safe. So I lost all the money. But, you know, for my sake of my sanity yeah. and my health, well-being, I had to make that move. Yeah. And then I came out and went to a Tony Robbins event, which I loved. I mean, I loved that. I, well, I was looking for something. I, was, I said, I'm a, I'm a broken man. I need to I need to find something emotionally which is going to fill me up again. I don't know how I am. And then I went to this event and I thought, oh, I found a, a route of what I can do now. Because there was lots of it resonated with me. I'm a good networker. So I networked and I met. Turns out Carl, who I mentioned earlier, he now runs, he ran a group on the piggyback, on the back of the train, he's been running for 25 years in London called the S Group. And I went, I, when we spoke in the gym and he was trying to tell me what you did and I I never knew. And he said, yeah, this is what I've been doing. So he said, come along. So I went and I thought, oh, wow, this is great. I can do this. My story's valuable. I realise now and people go, what? Yeah. And they tell him about what I've done and what I've been through. And now, now I come out there and start to go, oh, wow, we. It's like a big, and, and I, I always never thought that because I always had this negative thinking. It's only now that I think, wow, I, I can help people because I learned. I've learned a lot now. I've learned a lot of how we think, how humans react, about the environments we're in, about you know what causes us to think, behave in certain ways, and you know um, there's some more learning I've done, which is incredible. I won't baffle you with it now, but so yeah, moving forward, I, uh, I I started networking and doing this stuff and meeting people, some really cool people who've also had incredible life stories and changed for the better. So I, I met up with Carl introduced a girl called Michelle, who's fantastic, Michelle Allen. I met another guy who unfortunately is no longer with us, but uh, the three of us sat in this office and talked about our journeys and we cried and we, we got emotional and we just went, wow, man. And I told her the stuff I'd done, the learnt tools I'd learnt through my drug and alcohol stuff and smart recovery and CBT and REBT and, you know, sitting guilds and, you know, the uh, MBQs and sort of, so I did quite a lot of learning, believe it or not. I never, never, never congratulate myself, but, you know, for someone who never looked at a book for 30 years, to write essays on an MBQ and pass it and then do a sitting guilds and pass a certain section of it, it was great, good stuff. I learned a lot and we just started to discuss, well, how does, we know the impact of mental health is getting bigger on the world because we get to see it and people, you know, I noticed myself and we all noticed that the fact that we, you know, we look at, Facebook and and, and it, it doesn't make you feel good. Yeah. It's not make you feel good. You 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 come away thinking, come on, techno overload here, and I'm worried about what people are saying and thinking by this. And think, no, so we've got to find a way to to impart this message that you know we can be happy and happier by changing a program or changing a little something. And I'm not saying positive mental attitude. Wow, wow, we're Batman all day long or Superman or Spider Man. It's hard. You can't do that because life is not like that. So you've just got to be a in a, in a position to accept life on life's terms and say, you know, this has changed. That's happened. How am I going to deal with that? Because it's affected me in this way. We came up with saying, look, you, you know, by changing certain things, you will resonate. If you do it often enough, you do it every day, you'll feel different after two months or a month. You'll feel different. If you carry on, you won't go back to the old thinking. 
because you would have changed your neural pathways by then. You would be thinking new, more positive thoughts. And there's a whole, I, you know, I'm a goal mapping practitioner. I met a guy called Brian Main, who's incredible. Turns out we'd known each other for years. No, we hadn't met as such, but we'd been in the same room. He owned a nightclub in the Isle of Wight. And he'd had a similar, say similar, a journey of, yeah, lost a lot, came back with a, you know, from a place of real panic and what do I need to do? And he came up with this, you know, this program of goal mapping, which is fantastic. And he gave me the practitioner's course. So I teach that. I coach that to people now. People come to me about drug issues a lot and ask for help and I'm happy to do it. I don't get involved in the counselling so much anymore because I just, it's not, it's, you know, because I... It's too many blurred lines in health and safety, but I'm happy to pass people on and signpost them and talk to them for a little bit and say how much better it'd be without. And then I've got other people who ask me, because of more of the coaching side, you know, what I found is, and this is now, that we're at an age, and people like myself, who I'm 52, but a lot of my peers who are of a similar age, who, you know, who were very famous or busy or successful and have now, because of this sort of dramatic change in the way we do business and the way we interact and the way that you know uh music's made and other djs have become very very big and famous and there's a different demographic and you know their life's plowed they're like what do i do i'm only halfway through it and you think about it 50 years you're only halfway through your life what do you do yeah so you know you think better that's what you have to do you have to change their thinking you have to start i mean it's difficult but you do it, and over days and practicing and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm changing my thinking, I'm changing my thinking, I'm doing a different thought. Over days, you, 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 what happens is you slowly begin to change. But the trouble is, because we live in such an instant gratification world, we want that change quick. If it doesn't happen, we get disheartened. It's not, it's, it's a, the goal we set don't get achieved, and we're too hard on ourselves, and we go, I'm not doing it. Yeah. And that's what happens. You have to accept that it's just going, it's going to take how long it takes. It's not a switch off button, and it won't happen. It won't happen by taking drugs. Yeah because they don't work. So considering where you started and the journey you've been through to where you are now, obviously you're doing great things and positive things. Would you look back and do any of it differently considering where you are now? You mean or have it... my life mapped out? Yeah. No, I, look, I think we all have regrets. But I, I, I do not live in hindsight now. I used to. I don't anymore. I let go because it's pointless. Yeah. And it just makes you feel bad. What I should have done, what I... What I could have done, if I only if, if only I had, and oh, nothing's going to change. Just let it go, move forward. Having said that, if I if I if if I'd have known what I know now, back then, maybe I would have done something. I've always said I probably wouldn't have been as hard on myself. Of course, the illnesses yeah. made myself so ill. Yeah. I always think you know because I think you know, you know the body does recover very well. But there's certain things that, you know, you're left with after such a indulgent past, let's say. So maybe I wouldn't have been as hard on myself. But, you know, the other stuff, as I say, what's the point? What's the yeah. point in worrying about it or thinking about it or saying, oh, if only, if only. I mean, we do it because we're humans and that's what we do. But to no avail yeah. because this is just not going to happen, is it? So this journey, it's all positive now in terms of, like, everything that you're dealing with. You've like, Does music still offer salvation what look this is a thing the thing that brian main the guy I told you about he said to me something in one, in, he said something in in uh, his when he was teaching the practitioners course and, and it resonated so much for me and i say it now because when we back in the day we were although we were we were indulged in what we were indulged in we heard music 
and it resonated because it was pianos and it was noises it was big big noises which you know heightened the experience but i never listened to the words stuff like promised land all that you sort of sung it but you never heard it whereas we hear i hear it now and if you listen most records have got love in because i think fundamentally music was made for love you know we know that love now is the most powerful emotion we can feel above all else if we can love everything we can love ourselves more importantly we can love everyone else and we can love other people we can love we can love you know life music it's all about love tracks that you love we kind of ask every person that we interview to pick five tracks for the house culture perfect playlist which you can find on spotify mm-hmm. they're across five themes first one being the catalyst what was the first track that got you into dance well, it's music? difficult to be into it, was, it there was a number to of narrow them. it down yeah you say dance music. I task my dance music. Could be back anything. In. Could be anything. Disco. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going yeah. back to jazz funk days. Yeah. And there was like about there was a there was a, a number of records which were quite fast at the time, but that was great for the dancing. And one was Atmosphere Dancing Out of Space, which was 1978. And there was one called Space Base, which I've listed by Slick, yeah. which is another. And it's been remixed many times, but at that time it was one of those records that I used to watch a friend of mine called Rob Marks, who was the most incredible dancer you i used to aspire to him and there was a few others who fran and ricky who were all djs as well in sound systems around that era so that was one of the records that inspired me to, to for the dancing for the lunchtime disco and you know the the, the space base and watching the boys dance it was the, pff, powerful so i loved that that was that was a catalyst for one of the catalysts for my journey transition to dance yeah let's say from okay. a naughty schoolboy. Uh, and so you're playing. You're you want you want to drop an absolute floor filler. What is your go-to floor filler? Praise cats shine on me because the words just. I play that song. I sing it to the top of my voice now because you just that. What a, what a paragraph to start the day with. I got peace, peace in my soul. I got love, love making me whole. Since you opened up your heart and shined on me. But you know, I'm giving thanks for every day, and it's gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. And gratitude is the key nowadays. You have to be grateful for what you have because, you know, you can quite easily look at what everyone else has and be ungrateful yeah. for what you have and you'll then live in a world of doom. Sunsetter, your perfect track to soundtrack a sunset. Oh, right. It is a beauty. Yeah. I had a moment, uh, and this was a while ago, I had a moment. That used to mean, that, that was my, not because of love, actually, because it, something else happened. And I, I loved the live version. I listened to the words of that song. And it was only, do you know what? It was only yesterday or two days ago that I played it again. I realised what she was saying about. That was my go-to cleanse record. Yeah. I would cry every time I heard it. We're talking about Joni Mitchell's both sides. We are now. indeed. Yeah. And and I spoke to Javier ages ago, Mambo's, and said, "There's the that would be a sunset record, my God. Because there's a bit right at the end where the sax, if you drop, when the sun drops on that ledge, and I know Jason does it, and I know all the lads who've worked at Mambo over the years, and I've got it to a fine T of dropping the sun at the time. But as soon as that drops, the saxophone, saxophone line at the end is a... And it would just, and I just pictured that moment and I thought, wow, that sunset would be incredible. Maybe I'll ask them if I can do that one day. Well, why not? Um, your tearjerker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did read your book, actually, and when I did email you up front and I thought, I've got a, got an inkling of what this will be. And it came back and it was Matt Munro, Born, Born Free. Born free. Born free, yes. I'm an animal lover. Do you know what it is? And it's that whole thing about climbing through adversity. The lioness who gets thrown into the wild. 
after being mollycoddled and after having, you know, like being parented by humans and gets, gets tries to introduce to the wild and fend for herself, comes back and oh, don't, I'm starting to cry now. I'm welling up. <laughs> and then goes against all odds and, you know, becomes a mother and has kittens and then, and then comes back over the mountain with the kittens, over the cubs to show, <laughs> to show the people that she did it, you know, and here's my family and, well, that's why it's a tearjerker. That's why, you know, if you can bring you to this, that's what music's all about, isn't it? <laughs> so we can move on quickly if you want. Um, the last tune, we did have a back and forth on this. I don't think we got it confirmed because you did say, because obviously we try and put this on Spotify. I try and get I, uh, available I, 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 last there. tune of the night, as you said, is I, I've, I've got a remix of Stand By Me, which I like, I like to play, but it's not... I mean, it's a moment record and it works in certain environments. But if you're talking about a dance night, a last record could be, you know, I mean, I know it's going to be cliche and stuff. And being Alison Limerick, it always works, doesn't it? Where love lives. Where does love live? Love's in, lives inside you. So Danny, you Danny up... Clockwork has chosen the same tune as well. <laughs> You'll be happy to know. Well, yeah. you know, and Danny's done incredibly well as well. You know, mm. we've been friends for... 30, 30 odd years and both had extremely incredible journeys uh, yeah, yeah you, where love lives it says it all all the words it says exactly what you need at the end of the night he also gets very upset if someone mixes over the strings at the end he said that he would he would bite someone if they, if they... I'm sure he would <laughs> <laughs> don't mix out <laughs> yeah I suppose there are lots of records you know uh, Promised Land Joe Smooth I, you know, st- actually I'm going to go uh, look, I'm going to go two records go on. I'm going to go Alison Limerick and I'm going to go Sterling Boyd it's alright because it's a it's a again it's a it's a statement of um, you know oppression but also with the music it's going to be alright I love that love that tune one last question yeah in terms of house music and house culture sum it up succinctly what does it mean to you I mean look I can only I can only I can only quote ABBA and say thank you for the music love it <laughs> we can finish on an ABBA quote it's all good well, you can say thank you for the music you know, we've been given something that's changed our lives we've been able to live we've been able to live through highs and lows for 30 odd years with our music scene and our go-to clubs and our communities we've created and the friends we've met so we've got to be thankful for the music thank you pleasure brandon block thanks so much hope you've enjoyed it i've loved it thank you house culture how inspiring was that Wasn't it great to hear how Brandon has turned his own life around and through his work in the mental health arena, the lives of others around as well. Bravo, Mr. Block. Also make sure you check out all the good work he is doing with the Happy Days for Everyone team, either on Instagram at Happy Days for Everyone 2019 or online at happydaysforeveryone.com. In terms of the music tracks we discussed in this episode, as usual, you can find them all on House Culture's perfect playlist on Spotify, so make sure you search for and follow that to keep yourself up to date of the choices from all of our podcast guests. Again, that's House Culture perfect playlist on Spotify. And about that playlist, I know I said on the last episode, which was an interview with Balearic legend John Satrencher, that his pick of the reflex revision of Rebel Rebel by David Bowie wasn't available on Spotify. Well, it turns out that the version of the song that the Reflex used to create that very special remix is on Spotify. 
because I've plonked that banger into the playlist for you guys as well. And if you haven't listened to that John Satrenter episode, why are you still listening to me? Get over to our podcast page and listen to it now. And whilst you're there, make sure you subscribe to us so you never miss out on future House Culture podcast releases. Then after that, as usual, please love, like, tweet, share, tell your friends, leave us a review. And a big shout out this episode to my man Rob Pryor for his kind words. He said that our Danny Clockwork interview, which was episode one, was superb. And he can't wait for more episodes. Don't worry, Rob, we've got you covered. So if you want to hear your name on air, be more like Mr. Pryor here and leave us some nice comments on Apple Podcasts. And why don't you come follow us and keep abreast of all things house culture by hitting up our Instagram feed at housecultureNet or by following the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. And finally, you can reach out to me, Matt Rouse, directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. See you next time. House Culture. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.